But uh, we are looking at Matthew chapter five this morning. So I would go ahead and uh, invite you to turn there in your copy of the word of the Lord. And we're gonna look this morning at the core characteristics of a disciple. You may remember that we are talking about the life of a disciple, kingdom life and what it looks like. This entire section of the gospel of Matthew is all about what it is to live in God's kingdom, to live in the kingdom of heaven. And so as uh, Christ has called his first disciples, as he has shown us that he is the fulfillment of the kingdom, he has shown us that, (coughs) my goodness, he has shown us that he is all of those things. Now he's going to show us kind uh, kind of a pocket guide for Christian living, if you will. That's really what the Sermon on the Mount is. It covers just about every aspect of the Christian life and in kind of a summary form. Boy, I knew I liked you for a reason, so thank you so much. (laughs) So uh, it covers just about every aspect of Christian life in a summary kind of form. And so you could say that this is kind of the pocket guide to Christian living. And so this morning we began in Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. It says the following. Seeing the crowds that we saw gather in chapter four, Christ went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, uh, excuse me, blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's open our hearts in prayer one more time. Father, we beg you this morning, not only to give us the correct interpretation of these verses, but also to show us the significance of them for our lives. Lord, that we would walk out of here with a true faith and a true obedience that springs from faith. Lord, we ask for you to move me aside and that you would build your people up on their most holy faith that we may know you and know Christ crucified. It is in your name we pray, amen. So everybody today talks about faith and everybody talks about, you know, you gotta believe in something. You gotta believe in yourself. You gotta believe in others. You gotta believe in the goodness. You gotta believe in in all of these things. In fact, I believe it was uh, George Michael who said, you gotta have faith, faith, faith. You gotta have faith, faith, faith. I don't think he ever actually says what you gotta have faith in. But, but the idea in the world today is that as long as you have faith in something, then that is enough. 
And your faith doesn't have to be my faith per se. It doesn't have to be anyone's faith. It needs to be your faith is, is what they say. And so, and even in the church, we talk sometimes, we talk about faith in ways that is, is maybe not the most constructive. Sometimes it's the idea is that we're trusting in, in faith, in other words, our ability to have faith instead of in Christ. And we've always got to keep that understood. We've always got to keep in mind that Faith alone saves, but not because our faith is great, but because the Savior that we have faith in is great. That's what we've got to keep in mind, is that our faith saves because we are placing our faith in a great and saving Savior. That is what faith is. And yet there's always been this kind of discussion of, well, what is biblical faith? What does biblical faith look like? And so, for example, you'll have some people who will use the example of Gideon, who they will put out kind of uh, fleeces, if you will, and, and test their faith. Uh, I knew of a, a young man one time who uh, said he was um, candidating at a church and he was kind of going back and forth. Uh, which one should I go to? Should I, should I go to this one or should I wait for another one? And, and finally, he kind of threw it out there. He says, Lord, if I come here and preach today and, and you and you you lead two people to Christ in this church, then I will know that I'm supposed to be the pastor of this church. By the way, just so you know, uh, in the book of Judges, Gideon's putting out the fleece is not considered a good thing. And the Bible says that Jesus himself says that it is only those who don't have faith who seek signs. It is, the, it is a wicked generation that seeks signs. And so, so we've gotta be careful with that kind of stuff. But, but that's how some people will teach faith. Other people will say that faith is this kind of tangible thing. As, as long as I speak it, uh, it will come into existence. I remember watching a, a lady one time. She was a lady preacher. And she was like, you just speak. And she had a checkbook back then. But, but uh, she said, you just speak to your checkbook and you say, checkbook, you're just so full of money. I've never seen you so prosperous. You just, you just have all this money bursting out of it. Don't you wish it worked that way? I really do. I, you know, that's better than money grown on trees, right? I mean, you can just, you know, I just go talk to the ATM and it gives you all you want, right? Give that a try and tell me how it goes. That's not biblical faith. None of these things are biblical faith. And so the question is, is, is there a place in the New Testament that describes what biblical faith looks like? And the answer is yes. And it is right here in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. These are the core Characteristics. If you are going to come into the kingdom of God, you must do so by faith. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that Jesus is about to describe right here. This is the kind of faith that God is seeking. And so my goal for you this morning, my purpose is that, my prayer for you is that you will build yourself up in a genuine faith in Christ that you will be built up in faith on your most holy faith is what Jude refers to it as, Jude 25, and that you will do so as Christ describes it here. 
So I've, I've set the context for you. I've told you what's kind of going on. And so the question is, how do we build ourselves up in our most holy faith? We must seek and pursue biblical faith as Christ is describing here. And so what does biblical faith look like? There are eight core characteristics of it, which really when you look at it, you can kind of divide into two aspects, into two aspects. So we're gonna look at two aspects of biblical faith this morning just as quick as I can. You say, wow, Randy, you got eight main points. Well, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna summarize them. We're not gonna talk about them all, but here we go. And so if we are going to have biblical faith, if we're going to pursue and seek biblical faith, the first thing we must seek is the inner realities of our faith, the inner realities. And that's really the first four uh, characteristics that Christ gives us here. So before we talk about that, what does it mean to be blessed? He says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And I want you to understand that what we're talking about is more than just happiness or a circumstantial joy that comes from when things are going right. You know, some people will say that what Christ is telling you here is how to be happy, and that's what the passage means. Well, yes, the word blessed does mean to be happy, but I want you to understand that it's not a surface happiness. It's not a circumstantial happiness like so much of what the world is looking for. But instead, you've traced that word blessing all throughout the scriptures. What it is referring to, it's those who walk with God, the experience of those who have the divine favor of God's grace on their hearts, on their lives. In other words, they are those who live by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, those who walk in their lives with that divine favor, with that divine joy, remember, my, your salvation is my joy, the, the joy of my salvation, all of those things that the scripture talk about, how, what do those things look like and how do we come into those things? We find the inner realities here, number one, is that the one who is the Lord's disciple, he must or she must be poor must be poor in spirit. What's he talking about here? Most interpreters today would say that Jesus is speaking of the literal poor. In other words, the economic poor, the, those who are in the third world, those who are oppressed by whatever definition you wanna give that today. They're the ones who are held down in society. And in order to be blessed, in order to, be, to find that joy, they have to lift themselves up or they have to be lifted up out of that oppression or out of that uh, being held down by society. And that's where you get these kind of ideas like social justice. And that's where you get these ideas like liberation theology and, and stuff like that. But I want you to see here is that Jesus is talking about a very specific kind of poverty. He's not talking about being poor economically, but he says, blessed are those who are poor in what? In spirit, right? And so we're talking about a spiritual poverty here. We are talking about those who are poor in their spiritual lives. You know, back in Jesus's day, you really didn't have middle class as we know it today. You had the rich and you had the poor, 
and the rich had everything and the poor had literally absolutely nothing. They had to work every single day. They depended on day labor. And if there was no day labor available, then they just had to go without eating that day. And so often when someone got to a point to where they could not do day labor anymore, they were reduced to begging. And that is what this passage is talking about. It's blessed are those who are poor. In other words, we are talking about the poor of the poor of the poor. We're talking about the bums that even the bums look down on, right? They are those who are most destitute. They are desperation. And what Jesus is saying here is that those who will be blessed, those who will come into the divine favor of grace must understand that they are totally and completely desperate in their spiritual condition. That we are totally depraved. We are completely sinful. This is spiritual poverty, Spiritual desperation. We are not merely at a disadvantage spiritually, but we are desperate. Our situation is dire and our sin is total. There is no righteousness or goodness in me whatsoever that brings me to the place of salvation. I am completely and totally depraved. And so blessed are those who are poor in spirit that when we come to Christ, we must come to Christ in total desperation, knowing that Christ is the only one and only by his grace are we saved. If you haven't come to Christ like that, then you have not come to Christ. If you come to Christ thinking that there is any goodness in us whatsoever, then you have not come to Christ. Our situation is desperate. Our, there is nothing in us that earns salvation. We must understand that. Those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And number two, the Lord's disciple must not only be poor in spirit, but they must mourn. They must mourn. What is mourning? We heard about this at Miss Sherry's funeral on, on Thursday. This was actually the text that was used. And I love how the young man, he did a great job. You know, that was only his second funeral. And he did a wonderful job. And it was Sherry's grandson. And the young man talked about what it means to be blessed for mourning. And he talked about how those who mourn will be comforted. And, 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 and he brought that to our mourning and how we were mourning over the loss of our dear friend. But then, he also, but then he also kind of turned it around and showed us what it meant in context. That those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their sinful state are also those who are going to mourn over their sin. In other words, this is not someone who recognizes that they are a sinner and they are just okay with that. This is not someone who recognizes that, yeah, I know I'm not perfect and, and therefore uh, I come to Christ to forgive me for the areas where I'm not perfect, but all the other areas where I don't need him, I, you know, those areas are just okay. This is not someone who is a sinner and they're okay with that. It is someone who mourns over their sin. It is someone who is, is, is so upset over their sin. They are sorrowful over their sin. 
In fact, you think about the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter three. Think about someone for a moment like them. Place yourself in that position. Someone who says, in fact, and I'll just look there real quick, in, in, in Revelation three, I believe it's 17, where they said, I am rich, I have everything I need. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Place yourself in that position. You think you are rich, you think you've done well, you think you've got all of this cash in the bank, and then you go to the bank one day and you discover that all of that is gone and you are destitute. Think about losing everything you have overnight and imagine the mourning and the grieving that'll come with that. And that's what we're talking about here. Let me ask you a question. Whenever you, you know, the, the chip readers that they use now, you know, they always take a little longer than the strips used to. In fact, sometimes I think I could go like get a job, get a paycheck and then pay for it before that chip will authorize. And do, do any of you, you know there's money in the bank, but do any of you, when it's taken an especially long time, do you have that moment of terror that you're thinking that, do I have enough money in the bank? Is there a bill I forgot about? Did somebody steal my account? Is there, is there something going on? And then that wave of relief when the, when the thing actually finally authorizes, right? Am I, am I the only poor man mentality in here? Okay, so... <laughs> Imagine the grief of finding out that you have lost everything. And that's the morning. I thought I was a pretty okay person. I thought that I was okay. I thought I was righteous, but now I find out that I am spiritually destitute. And that grieves them to their core. They're sorrowful over their sin. This is not a person who rides both sides of the fence. This is not a person who celebrates their sin. This is a person who mourns over it. And by the way, beloved, and I'll go ahead and, and say this, and John, you can, you can uh, testify to this. Beloved, we need to pray for our teenagers. We need to pray for our teenagers. I'll tell you why. The consistent testimony I have heard from all of our teens is that the kids at school who claim to be the Christians in school are all some of the most rotten, mean-spirited, vindictive people who are there. Is that right? That is the consistent, and, I, and I'm gonna tell you, that is hard on our teenagers. That is hard. They don't, I, I just got this question again, Wednesday night, about a young man who is supposedly this great Christian at school, and yet, some of the stuff he does and the way he treats people and the way he bullies people and all this kind of stuff is just amazing. Beloved, we need to be praying for our teenagers. And not just our teenagers here in church. We need to be praying for our community, our high school. And for our teenagers, beloved, we need to be showing them something different. We need to be showing them something better. Amen? And so, beloved, pray for them. But understand that someone who celebrates their sin, who is not mourning over their sin, that is not biblical faith. Someone who comes to Christ genuinely as someone 
who is tired of their sin. They hate their sin. They, they know what their sin has done. That's mourning. They grieve because of it. They mourn over their sinful state. And then verse five, the Lord's disciple must be meek. Meek is kind of an old word. We don't really use this anymore. What is, what is it talking about? Some of your translations may say lowly. Some of your translations may say gentle. Those are good translations. It was used to describe the process of taming a horse, breaking their spirit. And today, it's often used uh, as kind of someone who's a doormat, you know, someone who kind of gets walked over a lot. There's someone who's weak in their convictions. Uh, you know, they'll say one thing to you, but then they'll turn around and say something completely opposite to someone else. It's kind of it's used to refer to stuff like that. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is that someone who is bringing their spirit, bringing their life under the control of someone else. So think about those of you who are familiar with horses. When you tame that horse, that horse is no longer using its incredible power to do its own will, but instead it is using its power and it has submitted it under the control of the rider, right? And so in the same way, someone who is meek is someone who has submitted their lives. They have surrendered their life to the authority of someone else. In other words, they've accepted the lordship of Christ. They've submitted to his kingship. And then number three, number four, excuse me, those who would be the Lord's disciple must hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is, the ap- this is the opposite of what we said before, to where someone who recognizes their spiritual thirst, someone who recognizes their spiritual hunger, someone who understands that I am desperate, that I am destitute, I am a spiritual beggar. This is someone who now is hungering and thirsting. They are starving for the righteousness that they long for. They long to have the righteousness that they need. They long for Christ's righteousness and they long for his forgiveness of sin. And so this is someone who is spiritually destitute, someone who mourns over their sin. They submit to the lordship of Christ and they trust in his righteousness. They long for, they want his righteousness to be placed on their lives. Beloved, this is biblical faith. This is the faith that saves. Jesus is not preaching some political revolution. That is not how we enter the kingdom. Think about this for a moment. I mean, just just think about the absurdity of that. Those who say that Christ is preaching some political revolution, and then he comes down to the word meek. Have have you ever noticed they just kind of skip over that one? Because if you're doing a political revolution, the last thing you want to preach on is coming under the control of another, right? That doesn't work, right? Right? And so, so Christ is not preaching some political revolution here. Instead, what is he doing? He's showing us what the inner reality of biblical saving faith is. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, Ortland tells the story of a compassionate doctor. He traveled deep into the jungle. He had the medicines. He correctly... Uh, diagnose the, the problems. He has all of his medical equipment there. He has no need for them to pay because he's independently wealthy and all the antibiotics are there and they're ready and they're available and all he needs is the tribesmen to come and take the medicine and yet they will not come. Why? 
Number one, because they want to heal themselves using their traditional medicines. And number two, because they don't trust that the doctor has the healing medicine. And beloved, does that not so describe some of us that we will not come to Christ? Why? Because we still want to pursue righteousness on our own and we want to be our own good person. We want to heal ourselves and we don't trust that Christ has the true, genuine healing medicine that is the answer for our sins. And what what Christ is describing here is the exact opposite of that. You could look at it this way. To be poor in spirit and mourn over your sin, what is that? That's to repent. And to submit to the control of Christ, to submit to his lordship and hunger and thirst for his righteousness, what is that? That's to believe. What is Christ's message? Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what does repentance look like? We, rest, we recognize our destitution. We recognize our poverty in spirit. And we mourn over it. We're sorrowful over it. And what does faith look like? Believing. We submit to the lordship of Christ. And we hunger for his righteousness. So he's fleshing that out. So that's the inward realities. The first four descriptions of biblical faith is the inner reality. But now the question is, what's the outward expression of this? So we say the inner realities, we must seek those, but now we also pursue. Faith does not just stay inward, it works itself out in our lives. And what does that look like? What are the fruits of repentance, you might say? Or what are the fruits of biblical faith? What does it look like when it is expressed toward the others around us? Just like there are four inward realities, biblical faith will show outward fruit. And there's four of these that that Jesus kind of summarizes for us. Beginning in verse seven, he says that the Lord's disciple must be merciful toward others. You see here, it says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. When we have received so much mercy from God, when we have received so much forgiveness from God, when we have received all of this, how can we be anything but merciful toward others? Those who are unmerciful toward others, they tend to be unaware of God's mercy toward them. Have you ever noticed that? Why are we so critical of others in in areas of their life? Have you ever noticed that it tends to be areas where we tend to be strong in? And have you ever noticed that when we are critical towards someone else for those specific areas that they are struggling in, it's because these are areas that we don't really seem to think that we need that much help in. You know, I don't really need God's redemption here. I'm, I'm a good parent. I don't really need God's redemption here. I handle my finances well. I don't really need God's redemption here because I'm doing okay in this area. Boy, so-and-so over there, they're the ones who really need it. Look at, look at how bad they're doing, right? By the way, remember what Jesus said? Do not judge lest you be judged. Have you ever noticed that when God tends to humble us, it tends to be in the very areas that we're proud in? He's bringing us to that need of redemption. He's helping us to understand this. 
How can we be anything? We have, just like the Pharisees and other legalists, they have no concept of grace, no concept of mercy, and yet those who are growing in the inward realities of those things that we saw in the first four, verses three through six, those who are growing in those inward realities are gonna be those who are merciful toward other people. They're gonna be slow to anger, slow to wrath. They're gonna understand that the, that the wrath of man does not produce that the righteousness of God. Oh, parents, how we need that today. The wrath of man, the wrath, hum, human wrath, human anger will never produce the righteousness of God, not in us nor our children, nor anywhere else for that matter. And so we could literally give scores of biblical proof for this, where Christ says, you must forgive. You must forgive. As you are forgiven, you must forgive. We could give scores of verses, but we're gonna move on. The Lord's disciple must be merciful, but they must also be pure in heart. Must be pure in heart. For those who are growing in biblical faith, there is a continual desire to purge their hearts of sin to purge their hearts and, and get sin out of their lives. They desire to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. They desire to grow in their holiness. And again, I want you to notice something here. We're not just talking about a list of rules that we follow because notice where the purity is coming from. The desire to rid our hearts of sin, the desire to, to um, repent of sin is coming from within. It is coming from the heart. And so we're not just talking about, you know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date the girls who do or, or anything like that. We are talking about those who, because they have been saved, because they are growing more and more like Christ, there is a holy hatred of sin that is growing, especially the sins that we're personally struggling with. There is a holy hatred that is growing. They are pure in heart. This is not rule keeping to earn favor with God, but it's a, it's a genuine desire to be like Christ. I think again of that classic prayer, I think I mentioned it last week. I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was, uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was Anselm or Spurgeon. I can't remember. But he said, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. Well, that's a good prayer. Isn't that a great request? Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. The Lord's disciple must be pure in heart, must be merciful. The Lord's disciple must be a peacemaker in verse nine. Someone who desires to reconcile disagreements with others. They do not hold grudges. They do not hold others guilty. And as much as it depends on them, and I want you to understand, sometimes you know, you desire peace with others, but the other person does not desire peace. Uh, we get that. That's why Paul says that as much as it depends on you, be at peace with others, okay? The Bible's realistic here. But to the extent that it depends on you, we pursue unity with our brothers and sisters, especially within the church, they seek to be reconciled. Part of Christian maturity is what Paul refers to in, in chapter four of Ephesians, the unity of the faith. 
A church is mature whenever you, whenever you see that there is a unity of Christ's likeness within them. That doesn't mean we're all cookie cutters. That doesn't mean we're all the same. But it does mean that in Christ, we are unified. It does mean in Christ. In fact, Christ in his final prayer on earth, on the very night that he was betrayed, he was in the garden and he was praying in John 17, that wonderful prayer that we see there. We're not sure exactly when he prayed it in the garden, but we know right before he was arrested, he prays this prayer. And what is he praying for? For all of his people for all eternity. He says, Lord, make them one as you and I are one. Beloved, the last recorded prayer before his crucifixion that we have in the gospel of John is that his church would be unified. And so blessed are those who are peacemakers, who strive for that unity. Proverbs 6, chapters, uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. I think this is important for us to see here. Proverbs, it says that a worthless person, a fool, you might say, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech. He goes on, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, and with perverted heart devises evil. And how does he do it? Continually sowing discord. Beloved, if you have a divisive person, if you have someone who is seeking division, that is not the mark of a Christian. That is not the mark of a biblical Christian. And so we've got to be careful here. A person who has been redeemed is a person who has no taste for discord, no taste for dissension. And yes, that applies to Facebook. Yes, that applies during election season. Yes, that applies everywhere. And so the Lord's disciple will be a peacemaker. The Lord's disciple will be pure in heart. The Lord's disciple will be merciful. And you would think that the world would love a person like that, wouldn't you? I mean, doesn't that sound like a great person? Doesn't that sound like somebody you want as a friend? You would think the world would would run to these people, right? But that's not what happens. In fact, the world's logic, the culture's logic is so twisted. It is so upside down that these are the very people that the Lord's disciple will be persecuted. The Lord's disciple will be persecuted. It says here in verse 12, excuse me, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the world's values are so different. The world's values are so much that they call evil good and good evil that when they see someone who is truly like Christ, Christ says, do not be surprised when they hate you because they, hate, they hated me also. That's the reason why we don't gear our services toward, toward things that will entertain the world. That's why we don't define our worship by by the desires of those who by definition cannot worship. That's why we don't do those kinds of things where yes, we wanna be at peace in the world, but but beloved, not at the expense of the Lord's gospel. And that's why we just have to accept the fact that the more faithful we are to Christ, the more some kind of persecution is gonna come our way. 
because that's the twisted logic of this world. In fact, of all of these, of all of these Christ elaborates this a little more. He says in verse 11, what are they gonna do in this persecution? They're gonna revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Because they hate your Lord. They hate Jesus. The Lord's kingdom is a threat to theirs. They know that the little castles of sand that they have built on the beach will come crumbling down when the mountain of God's kingdom takes its place. Our kingdoms of sand will crumble and they will do everything they can to resist. And so what does Jesus say to respond in verse 12? This is where the blessed comes in. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what they did to every prophet before you. This is what they're gonna do to you. And I will tell you, sometimes the persecution will come from people whom we least expect. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. He talks about the division of families. He talks about uh, brothers turning in brothers and sons turning in parents and parents turning in sons and daughters and all of those things. He says that understand that when we come to Christ and we want to live for the kingdom of God, the world will resist. It will resist. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in the kingdom of heaven. This is the third time he said kingdom of heaven in this passage. Third time. The first time goes back up to verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? What, what is it that, that these who walk in Christ's favor, when we have this kind of biblical faith, what is the kingdom of heaven that comes to us? What are the rewards of the kingdom? You can see them in every single promise that is in every one of these verses. The kingdom of heaven is, is what? It's gonna, play, it's gonna be a place of comfort. It's gonna be a place of comfort. Those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. Beloved, when you come to Christ in faith, you do not have to mourn over your sin anymore. Christ has comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, who submit to the kingship of Christ. They will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you come to Christ in faith alone, you will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, you will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, you will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, you will be called the sons of God. What is the kingdom of heaven? It is all of those benefits. It is all of that. That's what biblical faith comes. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is the fullness of our reward that we receive. And so beloved, we've seen that genuine biblical faith is characterized by these inward realities and these outward expressions. 
I want you to understand that they are both a work of God. It is something that God does within us. And it is also something that we pursue. Also that we pursue. It's traits that we cultivate in our lives and in the lives toward others. And so, as a result, we can build ourselves up in faith, in our most holy faith, by these, by cultivating these characteristics in our lives. And so, beloved, what can you do? I would say just go back, make these Beatitudes your daily prayer. I would say go back, maybe focus on one a week. And over the next eight weeks, maybe uh, focus on each one. Lord, help me to understand how desperate I am a sinner who is saved by grace. And Lord, thank you for bringing me into the kingdom. Lord, help me not to love my sin, but to hate my sin more. You might pray, Lord, help me to submit more to your control in my life. You might pray, Lord, develop in me a hunger and a thirst for more of your holiness, more of your righteousness to be displayed in my life. Lord, help me to be merciful because I've, I've received your mercy. Help me to be forgiving. Lord, help me to be reconciled. As much as it depends on me, help me to be reconciled with others and seek unity and peace, especially with those who are different from me. You can turn every one of these into a daily prayer and seek them out and seek to build them up in your life. These are a work of God and they are also something we cultivate. Beloved, you can't cultivate these if God has not put them in your heart. And so my question to you this morning is have you come to Christ with this kind of faith? Recognizing there is nothing in you. You are, you are poor in spirit. Are you mourning over your sin? You hate your sin. You hate your self-righteousness. You hate your pride. You hate the ways that, that disobeying God has brought pain and chaos in your life. Are you willing, have you come to Christ willing to give up control of your life, to give up all of your little castles of sand, willing to crumble them down onto the beach so that the reality of God's kingdom can be placed on your life? And have you desired recognizing your sin? Have you understood that you are in need of a savior and that Christ has come and that his grace is sufficient for you? And if all that is true, are you, showing the re, are you showing the fruits of that faith toward others? If you're not, I would love to talk to you this morning. Evaluate yourself. What, is, what does the Bible say? Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. How can we do that? I suggest taking these beatitudes and ask yourself, how much does, do these characteristics describe my faith? To what extent? and then seek to cultivate them in our lives. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as Savior, I would pray that you would come. You can talk to me, you can talk to Brother Roy. Ladies, if you're more comfortable, there's ladies in our church that you can speak to. Whatever your need is, I pray that you would come and seek to build, to commit to build your faith, build up your most holy faith in Christ, as Jude 25 tells us to do. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for...
your hope. We thank you for the faith you've given us. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there's one here who does not have, who does not walk in, in biblical faith, Lord, I pray that there's one here who has not come to you in faith alone, that they would come before it's too late. Lord, I pray for each and every person, each and every one of us, that we would be continually building up our faith, that we'd take these characteristics and cultivate them in our lives. And if there's one here who's looking at this and saying, this is not my faith. This is not what I believe. This is not what I am. But they've come to recognize that this is what they need. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning. I'm just gonna ask you to just uh, reflect on these words just for a minute, little bit while our musicians play. And if you're here this morning, you have a need and you want to... Uh, you want to talk about your faith or you want to talk about anything, I would invite you to come this morning as we play. Do you know that Jesus paid it all for you? Have you submitted to him and him alone in biblical faith? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your sins? for your forgiveness. There you are.